Supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing okay. How are you? Stove. It is starting yeah. to get hot. Not even Stove League, which yeah. is also hot, but yes, the Hot Stove League pitching yes. market is moving. Moving, moving. Yeah, so we got some stuff to discuss today. So we have the Jose Barrios extension with the Blue Jays for seven years, and we have the Eduardo Rodriguez signing with Detroit for five years, and then we have the Noah Syndergaard signing with the Angels for yes. one year. All intriguing moves in their own ways. So things had seemed to start out slowly, and we wondered whether the looming CBA negotiations would slow things down, but not in every case, at least. It seems like some teams and players are motivated to get deals done before that other deal gets done. Yeah, I think that we had talked about the possibility of some of the non-marquee guys going mm-hmm. in this little bit if they found a deal that suited them. Although I didn't think that it would be like the Rodriguez's and the Cinderguards. Like I was expecting we'd have like a flurry of reliever moves yeah. in this early going. So this is a higher profile of player and a potentially more impactful profile of player just by virtue of starters instead of relievers than I was expecting. But it's nice to have a little transaction news to tide us over. Yeah. For what might be a long couple of months. (laughs) Numbers 13 and 15 on Ben Clemens' Fangraphs Top 50 Free Agents list. So let's talk about Rodriguez for a minute because this is one of my favorite off-season things when a team, to use an old Effectively Wild reference, turns the corner. You know, when you exit the rebuild and you signal that you are ready to compete by making some big free agent splash. And Rodriguez on his own may not constitute a big free agent splash. It sounds like the Tigers are continuing to be in the hunt for other top players. They've been linked to Carlos Correa via rumors, but this is a pretty significant signing. And we talked about it last season that the Tigers had turned the corner without everyone noticing necessarily, but they started off so slowly with an 8-19 record in April. And not that April doesn't count or that you can toss it out entirely, but they were a winning team from that point forward. They trailed only the White Sox in record among AL Central teams after April. So again, like they seem to have the makings of a competitive team already, and now it seems like they are ready to spend. Maybe not to Mike Illich levels, but at least to Chris Illich levels. I guess we'll (laughs) figure out what those levels are, but This is technically a five-year, $77 million deal. There are some incentives there that could bring it up to 80, and there's an opt-out after two years. So if things go well, then Rodriguez could test the market again when he's still 30 because he's only 28 now, or maybe he'll just be with the Tigers for the long haul. But either way, it's one of the things that they needed because they have this young, exciting rotation with Scooble and Mize and Manning and those guys all showed promise at various points, but they needed some innings. 
they needed someone dependable to round out the rotation. And Rodriguez has had his issues and his ups and downs, but he's coming off a good year, at least if you dig a little deeper than the surface stats, because I'm sure that there are some Tigers fans who are looking at this and thinking, what, we got a guy with a 4.74 ERA and I'm supposed to be excited about that. But the peripherals are strong. Yeah, he he had a career best, I believe, in strikeouts and a career low walk rate. And I think that, you know, the Tigers infield is not like especially sterling. Their their defense generally is kind of below average, but it's not as below average as Boston's was this year. Yeah. Which, good God, Boston had some <laughs> bad fielding. Yes. And so you might expect that that some things will will kind of rebound for him if things shake out well. Like he had he had just like a ridiculously high Babip allowed. I think when Ben wrote about it, it was second worst in the majors. And so, yeah, 366. Yeah. And so, and he did that despite having like fairly normal contact quality. It wasn't like he was giving up um, mm-hmm. a ton of hard hits or anything like that. His hard hit rate was below average. So, I think that, you know, when you put him in front of a marginally better defense, and, you know, one that could get, say, better if Carlos Correa is yes. part of it. And maybe a better park, too, than yeah. the old lefty and Fenway situation. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I think that there are a number of things here that could move even his surface level stats in a good direction and in a hurry. And, you know, when you look at the Zips projections for him, they're they're pretty optimistic. And like you said, like if things go well, he has the option to test the market again. But if things go well, maybe he looks around and is like, I am part of a resurgent Detroit Tigers team and yes. I'm just going to stay put and help them win some playoff games. So I really like this move for them. I think, like you said, like they have these young starters. I think having a guy who is reliable who ended up being very durable this year despite missing an entire season because of heart concerns so like yeah i like this a lot for them i thought it was good he outperformed the i think both ben and the crowdsource estimates in terms of well in terms of years i think in terms of dollars he was right around um where we expected so like you know i i thought this was a quite good move for detroit and it's exciting to see them say we're ready now we'd like to Mm -hmm. try some stuff and do some things Yeah. So sometimes if you're a team that's coming out of a rebuild, you might have to pay a little bit of a premium to convince someone to come. I don't know if that is the case here, but it's like that message signing sort of to signal, okay, we're one of the big boys now. And yeah, if you look at like his expected ERAs on his Fangrass page based on batted ball quality, he's been very consistent. 3.68, 3.61, 3.55, skipping over 2020 as he did. And the ERAs have fluctuated a little, but yeah, the core skills are there and if anything improving. And it seems like pitcher development is a strength of this Tigers organization. And They seem to have started to supplement that with some interesting position players, too, whether it's Candelario or Badu or, you know, others in that vein who've kind of come along and have contributed and and made the Tigers a more watchable team when they weren't a contending team. And then, of course, you have Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green coming along. So it's starting to shape up, you know, And, and the Central has hardly been a powerhouse. And I think the White Sox are certainly set up to continue to contend and the Royals 
are trying. I don't know if they're succeeding yet. (laughs) And the twins seem like bounce back candidates, but definitely not like leaders in that division the way that we thought they might be or or some of us thought they might be heading into last year. And then Cleveland's just kind of hanging around. At least they have their name now. (laughs) There was an agreement between the roller derby team and the Cleveland Guardians baseball team. So they both get to share the names now. We don't know the terms, but at least that particular crisis has been averted for now for the baseball team. So (laughs) there are no truly terrible teams, I suppose, in this division, but it's definitely there for the taking. I mean, depending on the White Sox, what they do, they will probably enter the season as the favorites again, I would think. But based on how active the Tigers are between now and opening day, like, who knows? They they could get there. And certainly in the next couple of years, as they start to mix in some of their other prospects, good things on the horizon. Yeah, I I don't think that, you know, we can call it a bad division because I I think Chicago is quite good. And I think that, like you said, the Twins will bounce back and the Royals certainly think that they're contending. (laughs) And if they back that with a willingness to spend money, you know, they do have some guys who I like on, on the younger side. So it's not as if the Tigers can sign one more guy and then they're there, but they don't have a powerhouse in that division. There's no... You know, there are no Dodgers or Giants. They don't have a they don't mm-hmm. have a Giants team, Ben. Like you yeah. know, they don't we have, have to anyone. figure out if the Giants are a powerhouse. I'm sure we'll be talking about that before <laughs> for the next entire off Yes. <laughs> but so yeah, I think that there's there's room for them to to make moves and they could be one of those teams that has enough in-house that when they make a couple of signings, we look around come March and are like, oh, I guess we mm-hmm. kind of have to deal with the Tigers when we're making our preseason predictions, don't we? Yeah. So that's pretty exciting. All right. And then another team that is of interest to me, certainly, and is poised on the precipice of contention, always seems to be and never gets beyond that, the Angels, who have signed Noah Syndergaard to a one-year $21 million deal. They also have to surrender their second highest draft pick because he had a qualifying offer from the Mets that was declined. So the Angels, when I asked Dan Simborski for projections for the AL West, like right at the end of the season, and this is just based on who the Angels had under team control and who everyone else had under team control, he had the Angels projecting as a 500 team. And it seems like they have often projected as a 500 team or maybe even a little bit better than that. And then they've ended up right around there or worse than that. And pitching, that is the consistent theme. They always need more pitching. They always have pitchers get hurt. And this, like the Tigers move, seems like it's probably the first of multiple moves, I would think. And their GM, Perry Manassian, has talked about the need to sign starting pitchers. And this is a start. It's not clear how many innings they can expect from Syndergaard. He just barely made it back at the tail end of last season after Tommy John surgery, pitched a couple times in relief, didn't even use all his pitches. In theory, he should be good to go and back to full strength by the beginning of next season, but you never know for sure, and sometimes there's some rust, and he did have some setbacks during his rehab, so... 
They've tried this gambit before of signing guys who maybe have been hurt or have some injury risk, and often they have not really panned out. But Syndergaard is a, a higher upside, higher ceiling sort than they have traditionally pursued. And so I'm sort of torn between wanting the Angels to get pitchers and then fearing for any pitchers that the Angels get. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> I don't know. This is not like your bulk innings guy that the Angels have needed necessarily unless everything works out really well. But at least there is now a second non-Otani high upside ace type potential in that rotation and and i don't mean to sell others in that rotation short like patrick sandoval who looked really good at times like there's some talent there there's some young guys who are coming up and and mixing into that team too and reed detmers and so on so there's again always the makings of a contender when you have trout notani but maybe this will be the year that they finally surround them with a supporting cast i have two thoughts about this well, I have several thoughts, but two come most immediately to mind. The first <laughs> comes from friend of the show, Emma Blatchelary, who tweeted when this deal was announced, much as I like to think I'm decently immune to superstitious thinking, I know that I'm not because my immediate reaction to being approached by the Angels as a pitcher with an injury history would definitely be, sorry, thanks, but <laughs> the weird vibes, I can't. Yeah. It does feel like the Angels pitching stuff and the Mets general inability to keep anyone healthy stuff are colliding in a way that seems very <laughs> dicey, although is not in any way like predictive of what will happen with Syndergaard in this season. I do find, here's a thing that I was struck by. I was talking about this with Ben Clemens in the Fangraphs Slack, and he pointed this out, and I tend to agree. Kind of weird that it's a one-year deal, yeah? Yeah, I guess so. Like, I get it from Syndergaard's perspective. I, If I am him, I want to reestablish value and show that I can throw maybe not a full complement of innings, but very good innings when I do throw them. And the Angels have said they're going to go with a six-man rotation. And so I'm going to be in a position to manage my workload and hopefully stay healthy and then launch into something greater. But I find the decision on the Angels' part to go one year to be kind of odd because it's like if you're surrendering the draft pick, like, mm-hmm. don't you normally... I think we often see these deals for more than one year, I guess, is the point that I'm trying to make. And so, like, that part of it is a little bit strange. I mean, like, there's the there's definitely the possibility that in July we look around and we're like, God, the Angels rotation. It's fantastic. And there's also the possibility (laughs) we look around in July and we're like, poor Noah Syndergaard. That guy just can't get healthy. Yeah. I guess sometimes you see those multi-year deals with a pitcher who's still rehabbing, like still working his way back. And it's like, hey, we'll just we'll sign you for two years and we don't even expect you to pitch the first year or or maybe you'll be back late in the first year. But we'll have that cushion. And if everything works out well, then it'll be good for us because we'll have you for a second year. Syndergaard, maybe he feels like, hey, I'm just a healthy starting pitcher now. I made it back and my rehab is over. But yeah, there's definitely (laughs) a bigger error bar and, and more uncertainty. There, I mean, you can look at the rotation and say, okay, Otani, Syndergaard, Sandoval, Suarez, Detmers, you've got a couple other guys in the mix, Griffin Canning, Jaime Berea, I mean, Cobb and Bundy are both free agents, but... Really, that's another case of like, well, if everything works out, okay, that could be a contending team's rotation. But when has everything worked out for the Angels? So I would not be comfortable unless they were to sign at minimum one more dependable starting pitcher. And I know that they've kind of talked about short-term options and they've been linked to like Verlander and, you know, again, not that like 
Verlander would be a safer bet than Syndergaard either coming off of his TJ and at his age. So it would be kind of nice if they signed like, I don't know, Eduardo Rodriguez, (laughs) for instance, but someone who is still available, who does not have some serious injury issues attached to him prior to his arrival on the Angels. Yeah. And then Brios, you know, it's an extension, so I don't have as much to say about it. But this is a case where the Blue Jays gave up a lot of pretty good prospects to mm-hmm. get Brios for the stretch run. They're a team that was kind of like in the Tigers boat last offseason where they were ramping up and, and the rebuild was done and they were going to throw some money around and they did. And then they continued to show their willingness to upgrade the roster in season and Brios was a big part of that. And ultimately, unfortunately, they fell short, but they were just tough to beat down the stretch and they're bringing back most of that team not the entire team Robbie Ray is a a free agent of course but having Brios who was under team control for one more year to begin with now they've locked him up long term and they don't have to worry about that part of the rotation for a while so again like they have the great young position player core and the question all along has been where are they going to get the pitching and they've developed some and they've imported and signed some and traded for some and now extended some and it was actually a really good starting rotation and a good pitching team down the stretch didn't necessarily start out the season that way but it was one by the end and Brios was one reason why yeah I really like this I enjoy it's sort of a funny way to think about this perhaps but I really enjoy when guys who have been traded for and who a team had to surrender a good amount in terms of viable prospects in in Burris's case top 100 guys to secure then ends up being extended and staying which is funny because it just is a doubling down of your resource commitment right you gave up Mm -hmm. the prospects and now you're giving up money but there's something about it that's like yes this worked out the way we wanted it to we really like this guy we think he's a good fit for the team he makes us better and we're not going to be intimidated by the like prospects that we traded in order to secure his services we want to keep him around there's just something about it that I find very satisfying it's like validating the trade once more, which mm-hmm. was a trade we liked at the time, you know, despite it being aggressive in terms of how how many guys they had to give up to get him. So I like it. I kind of still would like to see them bring Robbie Ray back. I don't yeah. think that they are perhaps in the Robbie Ray sweepstakes anymore. I don't know. I don't say that knowing anything. I just wonder if like now that they've extended Burrios and they will want to continue to spend on the market that they will shift their focus to the position player side of things because they have Mm -hmm. indicated that they want to still be active there but yeah this is exciting like i like it jose barrios is really fun he's a great pitcher he'll be good for them for a long time it's cool yeah i guess if you're a twins fan you're sort of sad to see it just because you must feel like hey we could have signed him to that deal you know seven years 131 million i mean I think people understood why they made that trade because they had fallen so far out of the running in 2021 and they got good prospects back. But I guess part of what you're giving up when you trade a player like that away is the fact that the other team gets a chance to keep him for as long as it wants, gets to talk to him about an extension before he hits the free agent market. And maybe the twins might have told themselves, "Eh, you know, we can sign him when he hits the market in a year and a half, but that is not going to happen now. So the Twins have to figure out where their pitching is going to come from, but hopefully the prospects they got back will develop in a way that will make it a little more palatable that they won't have Jose Brias. Now Minnesota needs to sign Robbie Ray, and then ah, yes, and then it's all 
then it's like no trade happened at all. Question mark. <laughs> right. I don't know. <laughs> and I guess there's one final transaction we should talk about, which as we speak here on Tuesday afternoon has not been officially reported, but it sounds like the Mets' long national nightmare may be over. I mean, it's too soon to say that the Mets' nightmare is over, but at least their search for a baseball operations executive would appear to be over, and reportedly they have agreed to a deal with Billy Epler. Speaking of the Angels, former Angels GM, former Rockies scout and high-level Yankees executive. He has been a guest on this podcast. I met him when I was interning for the Yankees and got to know him a little bit there. So this brings the weeks-long, maybe more than a month-long search for a Mets first baseball operations president, and then when they gave up on that, eventually just GM to a close. And there are so many questions that remain to be answered about this organization and really even about this baseball operations department, because initially they were planning to have a president of baseball operations who would sort of supplant Sandy Alderson and Alderson would transfer to the business side. Now that they've hired a GM, I assume that Alderson will remain involved to some extent in baseball moves and obviously if you're Epler you must know that you were what the 12th choice (laughs) or I don't know how far down the list they got but it was really like one of the most public and protracted and frankly embarrassing (laughs) executive searches that I can recall you know usually it's just hey team x has a list of why candidates and now they will interview them and then they will hire one whereas with the Mets it was just week after week of oh so and so turned down the opportunity to interview so and so has taken their name out of the running you know they set their sights very high unrealistically high really with Theo Epstein and Billy Bean and David Stearns and you know it's fine to ask I suppose and with the understanding that you're probably going to have to set your sights a little lower but after that it was like well then they went a tier below that and then they went a tier below that and no one wanted this job seemingly which I guess is understandable given the Steve Cohenness and the fact that he will likely be meddling to some extent or at least tweeting and then you have Alderson and the complications right. there and you have Alderson's son who is the assistant GM and then you have just the organizational rot that seemed to have set in over a period of years and just the general reputation of the Mets so it makes sense that this position was hard to fill but ultimately they ended up with at least someone reputable like someone who has done the job before we could argue I guess about whether he did the job well but they got someone you've heard of (laughs) so that's something yeah I think the way I would describe it is that the Mets nightmare never end it ends it's just like punctuated by brief periods of wakefulness yep yep (laughs) that that makes sense it is I mean like I think I don't know that like Billy Epler is necessarily the indictment on the process but like the fact that they went through all of this presumably because they were in some cases waiting to hire guys who were involved with teams that were in the postseason to then end up hiring Epler, who was just like around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like you could have, and obviously they didn't know where they were going to land, but if they had, it's like, oh, well, you could have just gotten going. Like if Billy Epler is in place a couple of weeks ago, is Bob Melvin the manager of the Mets? 
<laughs> yeah, that's you a know, good question. like mm-hmm. I think that they're <laughs> they do still need a manager. They still do need a manager, so they're they're going to continue to have organizational pain points that they have to address and hiring they have to do. They somehow have another person who has been associated with Mickey Calloway in yeah. the organization. So like yep. that seems like a shadow you should have been able to get out from under entirely. I don't know. The whole thing is very strange. I think that if it were just Cohen that they would not have had as hard a time. It sounds like from the reporting that the Alderson of it all and the strangeness there with his son being involved has really created further issues for them here. So I don't know. I don't know. I didn't really have like very strong feelings about Epler when he was with Los Angeles. Like the fact that you were able to get Otani seems fine. Yeah. (laughs) When I talked to Epler about that, like he didn't seem to know how they got Otani. Wow, see, that's <laughs> less impressive too. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure they must have done something right, but I think even they at the end of that process were left wondering, like, why did he pick us? I mean, <laughs> I guess they, you know, gave him assurances that he would be able to do his two-way thing and, and they have lived up to that. Right. So it's worked out in that sense for Otani, although obviously he wants to compete. But yeah, that's a, a feather in the cap. However, it happened. He did sign Trout to that long-term extension. Yeah. It's weird. It's like, yeah, the the Mets have hired someone who has hired Mickey Calloway in the past and also was working for an agency, Shades of of Brody Van Wagenen, though not really because he's only been working for an agency for a couple months and obviously has been a GM before, unlike Van Wagenen. But I don't really know how to grade Epler's tenure in Anaheim, which was, what, 2015 to 2020. They didn't make the playoffs. Obviously, that is a a failure on some level. How much is attributable to him and how much to meddling Artie Moreno? You know, I don't know whether Epler just figured like, well, I've (laughs) been in this sort of situation before. So what's another meddling owner who's like in the public eye and is maybe inclined to intervene on transactions, which I guess we don't know for sure that Cohen will be yet, but yeah, it's not the most distinguished track record, which I guess is why many other teams were not necessarily clamoring to have him take the highest job in a baseball operations department over the past year or so, but who knows, uh, you know, I, I think he maybe had some family stuff going on. I remember speaking to him. I think he had just had a kid and he was kind of enjoying the time away as well. But, you know, it's hard to judge based on that Angels track record and say, yeah. oh, yeah, this is exactly who you would want. But also, can you completely condemn him and say he can't win based on that? Probably not. So there's uh, a lot of uncertainty that still surrounds this whole situation but at least they have resolved this single piece of the uncertainty and now they can move on to some other aspects of it like figuring out what transactions to make and which players to sign and (laughs) which manager they want etc i'm sure that won't take many many more months (laughs) no not at all i mean like uh they're they're in this great window where they have two weeks to get anything done before everything (laughs) freezes and then i I mean, you can hire a manager, I guess, while while yep. the CBA is getting sorted out. So they have a longer runway on that. But um, yeah, it's been a curious winter for them. It doesn't mean that they can't emerge from it like as a competent team, but they've made things harder for themselves. Like stop playing on hard mode. You you <laughs> could just 
be a, a team in an enviable media market with a very wealthy owner and win some baseball games. That's hard. Um, it's hard to win any baseball games, but I, I don't quite understand their need to make it harder. Yeah, there was uh, what Alderson suggested that like maybe some people just didn't have what it takes to come be a GM in New York or something. <laughs> Obviously, Epler has been an assistant GM in New York, but I doubt that is what was <laughs> the big obstacle for many people. And, you know, then there was that like anonymous quote that was in the post or something where some uh, anonymous executive was like, why wouldn't people want to go to the Mets? It's like the pinnacle of baseball or whatever. And it's like, what? What sport, what league are you watching exactly? But yeah, it's always seemed like the foundation was there. There was talent. It's a big market. You have the richest owner in baseball. Like there are the seeds of something. There are the ingredients for what could be a winning organization. It's just like they can't get out of their own way. And this search does not exactly inspire confidence, but maybe the result will be more beneficial than the process would suggest. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like uh, anything can happen once you start like playing the games and they do have a, you know, foundation of talent that is pretty enviable and they have the ability to spend, but they need to demonstrate like process proficiency, I guess, for lack of Mm -hmm. a better term, whether it comes to this kind of thing with hiring or, you know, the like the rocker debacle still looms for them. So I think that it is not that they can't in theory do that. And I don't, I don't have a great sense of how skilled a leader, Epler in particular, is at those kinds of things. So I'm, I, I'm not knocking him. I just don't know one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But you need to like demonstrate process proficiency before we're going to assume that there is like good logic and cohesive logic to the process. Yeah. They're not in the benefit of the doubt stage, uh, and mm-hmm. it might take them a while to get there. So uh, do that, and then mm-hmm. and then we might stop making jokes about it maybe it'll take some time but but yes it'd be nice if they would i enjoy when we have the opportunity to make fun of the mets for silly stuff like i need them to stop screwing up in ways that are like damaging to human people like when it's the mascot flipping off fans like that's the good mm, that's Mm -hmm. that's the spicy meatball that we're interested in (laughs) we are not interested in the like my life is permanently altered because of my interaction with this organization meatball those are bad meatballs yes all right by the way i guess the mariners are sort of in the same situation as the tigers what i was talking about like the the team that is ready to go all in after completing a rebuild or or at least getting a long way along in its rebuild who do you think i don't know what the best way to ask this question is spends more money this offseason or enters next season with a better wins projection or or whatever mariners or or tigers which one would you take today what a nice what an interesting question (laughs) hmm hmm ben i so hmm i think that it might be detroit if only Uh because you know they have like more of their young pitching up although they still have position player work to do obviously but i think it might be detroit the funny thing about seattle the reality we all have to prepare ourselves for is that like i could envision a scenario where they end up winning the exact same number of games next year that Uh they did this past season and they'll deserve it and that'll be the difference right we'll look at it (laughs) and be like this is a good baseball team and like they won they won games and like they 
you know, there's there's like heft behind that record. There's, right. you know, you pull back the hood and it's not just like a bunch of springs, <laughs> whatever fun differential is made out of. I don't know. So I could envision them doing that. I have seen the the bubblings. I took I took a little bit of a, a Twitter break uh, hiatus, if you will. Yes. And before I did that, um, I noticed just a lot of consternation among the Mariners fans I follow that they are, you know, they want to know. Who who is being signed? Who is being brought in? You know, it is mm-hmm. November, and they are antsy, and I can't blame them because it's like now you get to be excited, and so there are stakes in a way that there's often aren't when it comes yeah. to Mariners baseball. I think the good news for Seattle, this is going to sound like a backhanded compliment, and I don't mean it that way. And they still have to sign good players, obviously, but. There are a lot of places that this roster could improve, right? They have work to do, kind of. They need two starters and they need infield help. And, you know, despite having some really exciting prospects in the outfield and some good regulars there now, like, you can never have too many good outfielders, right? You really can't. So I think that from Seattle's perspective, as long as they sign good players, they'll get better no matter what because they have a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to be very strange to to like engage with the projections we'll have to have we'll have to have schusterman on when the cba kerfuffles are over and players have been signed and guys are getting ready to report to camp and we can like really look at the roster mm-hmm. and then it's gonna be weird because we're gonna look at it and i expect to be like the prices teams are really good and that's gonna feel so strange yeah in a good way, hopefully. In a good way. All right. Last thing, quick follow-up from our discussion on the last episode. You remember I suggested the idea of a rankings system? Yes, Something I do. akin to tennis or golf or chess where you turn on the TV and there's a number next to the player's name. And I suggested that something like that, in theory, could work for baseball. And what I didn't know is that they have that in cricket already. You know, the the Simpsons already did it meme where whatever joke someone makes, it turns out it was on the Simpsons already. Often that turns out to be the case with cricket where we suggest something wild and hypothetical in baseball. And it turns out that cricket already did it. So cricket has a ranking system. I'll just read an email that we got here from Mark who says, with regard to the discussion on the Effectively Wild podcast about ranking players, there are individual rankings in cricket, another team sport at the international level established by the ICC, International Cricket Council. Therefore, fans know who is the number one ranked batter or bowler at that moment. What's good about it is the methodology has been applied retrospectively. So there's an all-time rankings list allowing modern-day players to be compared to previous greats. And right now we know that England player Joe Root just takes the top batter spot ahead of New Zealand's Kane Williamson. I'm not entirely sure how the rankings are calculated, though sustained performance is part of it. They're adjusted after each game and players have a score that goes from 0 to 999. The widely acknowledged greatest batsman of all time, Don Bradman, had a peak score of 961 in October 1948. A similar system for baseball would be tricky due to the various performance metrics and fielding prowess most likely ignored. But maybe an analysis for batters based largely on OPS plus sustained over time and weighted to include strengths of opponents could yield something, although the likely answer would be Mike Trout. Yes, of course. Thank you, Mark, in England. And also, I note that these rankings are sponsored. So MLB, gotta love that idea. They are sponsored by... uh, MRF Tires, a tire manufacturing company that seems right up Rob Manfred's alley. So you could have the official MLB player rankings. 
And I asked Jared Kimber, the cricket analyst who's been on the show before, whether these rankings are generally seen as accurate. And he said, not by anyone with eyes. So that's a problem, I guess. He said the test ones, test cricket rankings are okay. That's the multi-day high-level rankings. But the shorter versions of cricket, ODI and T20, are apparently not very reflective of the player's actual performance or talent. But generally, it seems like this is accepted and it can be kind of nice for casual fans to see. And also when you have international competition and maybe you're not seeing the players all the time, it's nice to know where they rank and the schedules can be sporadic. There's no set season. So it has been advantageous in certain ways, apparently. And sample size is apparently an issue with the rankings in some forms of cricket, but wouldn't be as big an issue with MLB. So there's more precedent here. It exists in maybe the the closest relative to baseball among the major sports. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I know I know we got an email too. Someone brought up the pro football fo- focus yes. grades that yeah. are on NBC broadcasts. Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer with this when it comes to cricket, and I don't mean to speak ill of football analytics, but I do wonder if part of this is just like the the stat environment that fans have operated in in those sports is a little different than baseball. I think part of why it hasn't, it didn't resonate with me when we talked about it was that I felt like we already really had a framework to do this, right? We had yeah. a means mm-hmm. for debating. Well, we had a means for ranking, and then I was comfortable with the debate that that would <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes, this could be a, a monkey's paw situation where right. We get the official MLB player rankings sponsored by Dusan, and then the rankings are completely terrible, and we're just mad all the time that they're so wrong about the actual (laughs) ordinal rankings of the players. But, you know, there's some precedent. And one other follow-up to something we discussed, we answered an email about, like, the lowest value thing that teams would trade if they could, Mm -hmm. and we said, well, maybe they could trade broadcasters. We didn't know whether you could actually actually do that, but we suggested that maybe if they could do that, then they would. And there is a little precedent there, and it's notable precedent. Ernie Harwell was traded when he was a a young up-and-coming broadcaster. He was broadcasting for a double-A team in in a minor league at the time, the Southern Association. And Branch Rickey, who was with the Dodgers at that time, thought that Harwell could be a, a good substitute for Red Barber, the Dodgers announcer who was recovering from an ulcer. So Rickey, in one of his many fine moves, traded catcher Cliff Dapper to that team that Harwell was broadcasting for in exchange for breaking Harwell's broadcasting contract. And as far as I know, that's the only instance in baseball history of a player being traded for a broadcaster. But I would say that worked out pretty well for the Dodgers and for Harwell. So there's precedent there. And I think you also suggested maybe a mascot could be traded. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of shut down the idea because, you know, in most cases, a mascot is associated with one team and wouldn't really have the same value to another team. But there's at least a little precedent here in that Yuppie, the famous Expos mascot, was, I don't know if he was traded, but he was sold, I suppose. He was transferred to the Montreal Canadiens. So after the Expos moved and left Montreal, 
the Nationals initially said that Yuppie would still be part of the team, but then the Nationals adopted their new mascot, Screech, and Yuppie was just kind of hanging out in limbo for a while. And then eventually the Canadians made Yuppie their mascot. So there was some sort of six-figure transaction there and obviously staying within the same city and his old team left. So it makes sense that that would be the situation where that happened. Yeah. Did you see that the Phillies won there? Get to have yes, the, I did. Mm-hmm. Fanatic yep. as well in mascot land. I don't know. Yeah. The mascot thing is, it's interesting to me because it's like if you, there are people who have very positive and very negative associations with mascots. Some people love them and some people hate them. And it does seem like you're rolling the dice to trade them. Mm-hmm. It seems like you're you're making a bet on the balance between those things. Yes. <laughs> and lastly, Kazuto Yamazaki, Patreon supporter, wrote in in response to the question that we discussed about the best way to end a series. What type of routine play would you want to end a series on? And Kaz said, funny enough, Meg said the only bad way to end a World Series is a controversial play. And that is exactly how the 2014 Japan series ended. On what looked initially like a botched double play attempt by the SoftBank Hawks, the umpiring crew decided that the hitter was running inside the line and called him out, and the Hawks started to celebrate around the mound as the Hanshin Tigers manager argued near the dog pile. As someone watching it live, it was one of the most surreal moments, and I will link to the video for anyone who wants it. But yeah, that is not an ideal way to end. You don't want the outcome to be in doubt in the final play when you were trying to celebrate. Yeah, no, definitely not. Okay. I just received an email as I was about to wrap up the segment that greatly disturbs me. Here is the subject line. Shohei Otani joins FTX as global ambassador through long-term partnership. No. The the following press release was issued today by FTX, the official cryptocurrency exchange of MLB. Oh no, FTX Trading and West Realm Shires Services, the owners and operators of FTX, blah, 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 today announced a long-term partnership with global icon and history-making MLB superstar Shohei Otani. In addition to being an FTX global ambassador, Mr. Otani will receive all of his compensation in equity and cryptocurrencies, illustrating his strong belief in both FTX and the crypto industry. (laughs) Oh no. Shohei, no. <laughs> Milkshake duck for Shohei. No, I don't think this <laughs> no. quite rises to that level, but no, it's definitely uh, not. <laughs> it's a little disappointing. <laughs> he has been pretty judicious when it comes to being an ambassador and a spokesperson for things. Like I, I have read that he's left a lot of endorsement deals on the table, although uh-huh. he certainly has signed a lot, especially in Japan. But this is not what I would have chosen for him to rep crypto. Oh, well, I I guess I'm glad he's making money, even if it's in the form of crypto. (laughs) Sure. There's obviously a limit to this logic, but I generally don't begrudge athletes trying to make money through endorsements. You have, you know, you have your bright shining time and it is sometimes uh, not as long as you hope it will be. And so I Mm -hmm. understand making money while you can, but I just will forever resent anyone who tries to make me know more about this. Yes. Well, maybe we will touch on Otani again later in the week, depending on how some awards voting goes. Mm. Now we will take a quick break and then we will be back with a guest. And this interview falls under the category of can't believe it took us this long to talk about this. It's like (laughs) – 
when we had the creators of Blaseball on the show. And I thought, how did we not do this before? Because that whole game is about what if baseball was different? If baseball were different, how different would it be? And that goes for the Savannah Bananas as well. So many of you, I'm sure, have heard of the Savannah Bananas and Banana Ball, their attempt to debut a dramatically different and perhaps more exciting version of baseball. This is a a team that is in Savannah, Georgia and is playing exhibition games and is part of a, a college summer league but also has this traveling team that plays banana ball and it's basically like every effectively wild email show question put together into a game and we will be talking now to Zach Frangelo who is the director of entertainment for the Savannah Bananas so we'll discuss how the bananas came to be and where their future lies and what if anything could be borrowed from banana ball to make Major League Baseball better we'll be back with Zach in just a moment All right, I want to start this segment with an excerpt from an article that J.J. Cooper wrote about the Savannah Bananas back in March. He wrote, let me describe to you a new game. There's a pitcher. He throws a ball to a catcher. There are other fielders, nine in total. There's a batter. He tries to hit the ball thrown by the pitcher. Yes, there are umpires and foul poles. A ball that clears the faraway fence is a home run. Three strikes is an out. Four balls allows the runner to reach base. Sounds like baseball. It's not baseball. Each game has a strict two-hour time limit. Innings end immediately if the home team takes a lead. Each inning is a point. Win an inning, win a point. First team to five points wins the game. A fan catching a foul ball counts as an out. Walks have a batter speeding around the bases while the team in the field tries to throw the ball around the diamond. It's baseball-like, but I promise you, you are more likely to enjoy this game if you don't think of it as baseball. Just try to enjoy it on its own merits. Batters can't step out of the box. Coaches can't visit the mound. Instead of extra innings, any tie at the two-hour mark is settled by a batter-pitcher face-off. Each one of these showdowns results in either a point, remember, first team to five points wins, or an out. In the showdown tiebreaker, there's a batter against a pitcher and a catcher and sometimes one fielder. They're figuring this out as they go along. The batter is not looking to get a base hit because he has to go all the way around the bases before he's tagged out. Imagine a batter slapping a ball down the line and then racing to get back home before the pitcher can run the ball down and fire it to the catcher. It's crazy. It's unlike anything you've seen on a baseball field. But if you start thinking about what the Savannah Bananas traveling team is doing as baseball, well, that's where your brain may begin to fry. So let's fry out our brains a little bit today with the director of entertainment of the Savannah Bananas, Zach Frangelo. Hello, Zach. Welcome. Hi, guys. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I'm smiling ear to ear just hearing that. That's awesome. (laughs) Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, well, the team has gotten a ton of attention, not just from JJ, but from many other major media outlets. And now from us, we're a little late to the party here. So I know that this was your first full year with the banana, so you haven't been with the team since its inception. But can you give us a little high-level summary? Who are the bananas? Where do they play? Why do they play? Who plays for them, etc.? Where did they come from? And how did this become such a sensation? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll kind of dive in 
into my story just on how I got here first, and then I'll, sure. I'll head into uh, into the bananas history along those lines. So, uh, like you said, I just finished up my first season here with the uh, Savannah Bananas. Jesse Cole, the owner of the team, actually reached out to me personally at the time I was working in Vegas with the Vegas Golden Knights NHL hockey team, and uh, he he called me. He said, "I'm looking for a director of entertainment. I, I don't know if you." Uh, you know what we got going on over here, but I think you'll like it. Uh, I have a baseball background myself and, and kind of grew up in baseball. So it, it was kind of a no brainer. You know, if you're in the baseball world, you, you know what the Savannah Bananas are doing, but I don't think people quite understand the extent of how incredible this uh, this this team really is. And uh, came in and, and wow, was absolutely blown away of just the culture that has been created here in Savannah with the Bananas. But uh, going into the history of the bananas uh, started here in 2016 and you know it wasn't always sunshines and rainbows here of, of selling out every game you know at first they were they, they came into a market where professional baseball had ruled since uh, 1926 so uh, a long history here at Grayson Stadium and and a whole bunch of different teams playing here but it just seemed that baseball hadn't worked out quite well with professionally. So, you know, Jesse coming in from Gastonia and, and wanting to take over this market, they they they, all, they started out by only selling two tickets. Um, and, and they know they needed to change change the way they were thinking. And, and so they had a name your team contest. And uh, lo and behold, the Savannah Bananas came out. And like I said before, without being sunshines and rainbows, there was a lot of backlash with that. However, as time went on and, and things started to change, they started to sell out and they started to, to create fans and and it took off globally through the power of social media and, and viral videos. Th this place became became heaven for a, a fun, entertaining aspect for baseball. And um, you know, as time went on, we have uh, two teams. Uh, so that original team that started in 2016 was our collegiate team, mm -hmm. which uh, is a member of the Coastal Plain League. And then, as of this past year, uh, I believe it was 2020, we created our premier team which is really exciting. This is the team that plays banana ball and uh, they're a whole, def a whole bunch of different levels everywhere from, you know, former major and minor league players um, to indie ball guys, but just an insane talented group of guys that came together and, and we created uh, this new form of baseball in, in banana ball. And, it, and it's been nothing short of, of incredible to see the reactions that we've gotten and, and the, the good publicity from, from it as well. So a little bit more about you. You have a degree in dance, right? And Correct. then you worked in hockey with the Golden Knights and with UNLV. And then you joined the Bananas this spring and have graduated to Director of Entertainment, which is a great title. So tell me a little bit about the baseball background of yours that you mentioned and then also how your previous jobs in sports and also, I guess, your background in dance prepared you for the Bananas job. Yeah, so uh, I didn't think there was a place on earth where I would combine my <laughs> my uh, hockey, baseball, dance uh, resume, uh, yeah. quite like it has here. But no, like you said, yeah, I, I, I grew up playing baseball my whole life, uh, all through high school. I was playing at a pretty high level and uh, was, was fortunate enough to get a couple offers here and there, but nothing quite to, to where uh, I wanted to go. And then I also was playing hockey throughout throughout my life as well here and there. But once I once I got to school, uh, unfortunately, I was medically disqualified due to concussions, mm. and so that pretty much put an end to the baseball dream of mine. But throughout high school, I had started performing, uh, performing in dance. Uh, you know, with my two older sisters, uh, Lisa and Lexi, they were both involved in musical theater, 
and uh, they are having a show called Anything Goes, which is if you if you're familiar with your with your musicals, it's a tap dance musical, and so they wanted to get me involved, and, and I got involved, started taking tap dancing back in my freshman year, and uh, just kind of continued on that route, and I fell in love with it, and uh, so I knew that there was something there with dance. I started taking more technical uh, dancing with uh, ballet and jazz and modern and all that kind of thing throughout my junior and senior year. And then once I went to college and I got medically disqualified, I, I switched that over to dance. And uh, I, I just kind of went along with the performance and choreography aspect, which was awesome. You know, performing in front of crowds and, and learning about the history of dance and all that kind of thing. But shortly after, it was around my junior year is when the hockey team came to Vegas. And it, it was really interesting because I knew I wanted to be involved with it, but I didn't know how that was going to happen. You know, it, it's kind of like, yay, they're coming. Now what? So saw uh, an audition for their promo team and ice crew and having that hockey background, it was pretty, it was pretty much a no brainer to join those teams. Uh, did the audition, went really well, uh, was fortunate enough to get a position. And then after the first game, we did our first game and uh, they were short on stage managers. They didn't have people that could like set up everything that was going on. So myself and a couple other guys, we, uh, we uh, took over that role in that first year and uh, never looked back. And that's kind of where my entertainment and sports passion started to grow. I was under a great leader, uh, Johnny Greco, who's now with the uh, Seattle Kraken. He's been a great mentor to me since day one. And he's really pushed that love for sports entertainment. And then uh, as three years, three, four, uh, year three and four go by, it was time to take that next step. And I wasn't really sure where I was going to come to until February 17th. I was playing golf at Revere Golf Club in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'll never forget, I was playing with my parents, and I get a, a, a video message from a 912 number. I'm like, who the heck could this be? Take a look at it, and it's a man in the yellow tux. And, and you know, <laughs> thankful is an understatement for, for that connection to have happened and, you know, him wanting to just have the conversation. And, and you know, we had the conversation, and here we are, year down the hatch and, uh, and not looking back, that's for sure. It, it's been amazing. So this is an undeniably fun way to interpret the game, but I'm curious how you guys think about balancing that fun and the entertainment value that you're getting mm -hmm. with sort of maintaining some semblance of baseball as we understand it. And I think we talk a lot on this podcast about how different baseball would be if it were different. And we often arrive at things that we find to sort of stretch a bit too far. So I wonder if there's maybe a better way to ask this question is, have there ever been any either rule changes or structural changes that you guys have thought, eh, that's a bridge too far. If we if we were to do that, we would stretch baseball beyond even even what banana ball will tolerate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and it comes back to our core values of, of who we are as a foundation. We say it every day, you know, fans first, entertain always. So no matter what we do and no matter what way we stretch the game, we want to make sure that it gets back to being fans first. You know, is this really fans first? Is this really what our fans want? And is it is it entertaining? Is 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 it really doing that and getting to that final goal of fans first, entertain always? And absolutely, you know, we we're very big in the what if game. So what if the third inning was a circus? You know, what if you know we throw these ideas? And Jesse and I have gotten really good at idea creation. And uh, you know, throughout the season, we're doing ten ideas a day. Uh, we have a repertoire of, of 200 plus promotions. We're doing four new promotions every game, which include, you know, player walk-ups, player celebrations, new promotions in-game and during our pregame. You know, we have a full script that is longer than a lot of pro teams, regular script just for our pregame. 
so yeah, and there, we're always stretching it, and there's always those. Um, we, there's definitely been some uh, some interesting ideas that come along with that. That um, you know maybe stretch a little too far, but that doesn't mean that that idea became a diamond in the rough. Um, and for example, with banana ball with the showdowns, the original idea was that it was one on one, so you know pitcher versus hitter. Um, no fielder or anything like that. And, and we were finding that there was no way that the pitcher could get off the mound and go feel the ball and get it home in enough time to, you know, for, for a player to get around the bases. It just wasn't, wasn't happening and, and it wasn't creating that ideal, that, that perfect scenario. So we looked at the showdown and what is the perfect scenario of a showdown? Well, you know, either pitcher strikes out and celebrates or there's a hit and there's a play at the plate and it's this really awesome moment and you know you feel the tension in the crowd of the ball coming in and then it's making a play at the plate and boom he's safe or he's out and everybody goes crazy so that wasn't happening with it just being the pitcher so that's when we implemented the fielder so the fielder aspect of it of having a guy be on the infield grass taking off once the hit is made during Mobile last year, one of the most electric plays I've ever seen in baseball, and, and I'm, I've watched baseball my entire life. This is, this play was just unbelievable. We have a guy that's you know one of the fastest human beings I've ever seen, Malachi Mitchell. He's playing behind the mound. A ball gets hit out to the wall, and it's like there's no way that there's going to be a play here. This is too. It's like too perfect. He takes off in a dead sprint, gets to the wall, fields the ball, throws it in a perfect relay, play at the plate, and he's called out, and everybody just goes nuts. And that's like the perfect situation. That's the perfect scenario. And it, and it evolved from asking those questions from the beginning of like, what if the perfect scenario happens? So there's no such thing as a, a typical banana ball game. I guess it sounds like it's different from day to day. But mm-hmm. can you give us an example? Maybe walk us through a script for a game, maybe hypothetical or a very memorable game that you have had just in terms of the quantity of in-game entertainment that you have yeah. between innings and then also what's going on on the field. Yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of do both with you. Um, I'll walk you through kind of a, a normal uh, game day uh, for a banana ball game and what it looks like for myself and then, you know, everybody else. But, you know, we're showing up. Uh, I'll probably be there around 9 a.m. On a, on a game day, um, making sure all the scripts are finalized, getting those out to, to everybody. Our scripts don't just go to our entertainment team. They also go to our marketing team. Our ticket team takes a look at it. Everybody's involved in the script because everybody has a hand in it. And so obviously our marketing team wants to capture some of these incredible moments that we're, that we're going to do for the upcoming game. And then uh, from there, we'll have an all, all staff chat that starts around noon. And that's where all of us come together and really go over fans' first moments that we're going to execute throughout the game. Um, whether it be someone's birthday that we're going to make them feel special or someone's traveling in for their anniversary, wh- whatever it may be. We're going over all these moments and making sure that we're putting our fans first and doing unforgettable moments for, for all these fans. And then we hop into the actual game aspect. And so that starts around 4 o'clock and that's when guys start to show up. So at four o'clock is our, our call time for all of our characters and uh, our players and all that kind of thing. At uh, at uh, it's about three fifty, right before batting practice. Batting practice will start at four o'clock. We have our player meeting, and this is led by me. And this is where I go through the script with the entire team. And I, I don't know another team where the director of entertainment actually gets into the locker room and really starts to go over some of the uh, crazy antics that we're going to be doing. But um, it's very important that we're all on the same page. You know, I, I'm down there in the dugout with them all, all game. And so we all need to make sure we're on the same page and they know where they're going to be used, whether that be in the player dance or in the uh, celebrations or, you know, 
walk-ups, wh whatever it may be. We're all on the same page, and that happens right at 3.50, right before their batting practice. Batting practice starts right around 4 o'clock, and then at 4.30, I'm jumping into our cast, cast and crew, staff chat, basically. So now I'm going through with all of our characters, our princess, mananas, our dad bod cheerleading squad, banana nanas, our grandma cheerleaders, <laughs> split. Anybody that is is seen, we're going through this script, and we're talking about what's new, what's exciting, what, like where where they're going to be for certain things and really getting into the details because if we don't nail the details you know things start to get a little uh, uh gray area and we don't want any gray area we'd rather everything be yellow be in the yellow um as, as staying on brand there we want to make sure that everything is yellow so that's kind of where we're uh, a normal game would start and then right after that we get into our cast march or our full full march and this is right before the doors open. So our doors open at 5.30. So around 5.45, we are, uh, we're lining up and getting ready. Our entire cast, all of our players, and all of our coaches are involved in this march with our full pep band and everything. And this is how we open the doors. You know, we don't, we can easily just say, all right, um, doors are open and you can start scanning your tickets now. No, we have a full show that happens before with Hey Baby, which is one of our traditions, you know, throwing out foam balls, giving high fives, all that kind of thing. And then we do a countdown 10, 9, 8, all the way down to one. And now the gates are open and it's just showing that extra appreciation. And then all of our guys go through and high five everybody in line. And then from there, we get into all of our pregame traditions which start usually right around 6.45. Uh, Pre-game traditions being our banana baby, where we hold up a, a baby in a banana costume and play the Lion King theme song. You know, we have a home run hitter who's going to be the first home run of the game. It's usually Kitty. It's it off a tee and runs around the bases, makes this really awesome moment. First banana, you know, everybody does a first pitch, but we do a first banana. And it's actually called the golden first banana because we uh, combined it with one of our promotions. So we, we blindfold that person. And they have to find the banana based off of crowd participation, you know, cheering and booing to find the banana. Then they get up and then they throw the first banana. So it's adding those extra little details for fun. And then uh, we, we go into the game from there. And, and from there, it doesn't stop. And it, it reminded me of when you said like a specific game that sticks out to you. This past season on July 3rd, um, we did banana ball. And, you know, going through the CPL season, you, you get into a rhythm. Like the innings are going to last so long. So we have, you know, a certain amount of time between innings to prepare for the next promotion that happens in the next half inning. Well, banana ball, that could be a total of a minute long. Like an inning could like legitimately be a minute. And we weren't exactly ready as an entertainment team to get back to that speed. We had kind of forgotten about it. And, and so that first inning hit, I think the inning was maybe, I, I don't know, maybe three minutes. And then the next inning had happened in another two minutes. So in five minutes, we had gone through a full inning and our entertainment team, we just kind of were like, oh my gosh, we forgot about the speed of this because it's so fast and so just energetic. Uh, so it really got us back onto our toes and getting back into that banana ball rhythm of like, hey, this better be ready because it's happening real quick. Have there been any promotions or, or rule changes that you expected to go over like really well with fans that kind of fell flat? And were there any that have become mainstays that you guys were sort of surprised caught on to the extent that they did? Absolutely. So that, that kind of reminds me of, of the beginning of Banana Ball, you know, how this first all came, came about, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, three years ago, they, we tested this with college players and, and they got, they started it out and they had a nine inning game happen in 99 minutes. And so we're like, all right, we're onto something here. This is, this could be something in the future. Like this is, we're, we're on the right track. And then uh, eventually we brought it to our college guys here and did a game here. Well, 
the first walk, as you know, a walk is actually a sprint. So once ball four hits, the, the runner takes off and every defensive player has to touch the ball before the ball becomes live. This usually creates uh, an almost an automatic double or you know a play at third or sometimes uh, other situations. But the first time that we tried this, nobody knew what to do. So Bill Leroy, our, our catcher, and he's still with us on our premier team, he, uh, he takes off running after walking and he automatically gets a home run because nobody on the defensive side knew what to do. So the ball went into left field. The center fielder wasn't ready. It got thrown over his head. And now immediately we have a home run. And we're like, wait a minute, is this is this correct? Well, then we refine. And now we're seeing strategy be put into play with walks. So like the outfielders converge, the infield converges. And then, you know, we're seeing plays at second. We're seeing plays at third. And so the one fail, we didn't like throw it away because we're like, oh, there's no way this is going to work. We refined it and made it better. And now it's it's a staple, you know, like make sure you're watching. It's ball three. If, if ball four happens, you got to be paying attention because he's going to go out into a sprint and it's going to create this amazing situation. So I, I hope that that answers that question of like, you know, originally it didn't quite work. But then as we've, you know, grown and done more testing and, and tried it more so many more times, it's created uh, an absolute win. Tell us about foul balls being in play and fans being able to make plays on foul balls in the stands, because this is a hypothetical that we have considered on the podcast a couple of times. What would happen if MLB teams did this? And we've considered that it would probably be a disaster at that level because you would have teams just (laughs) filling the stands with ringers or there would be fights. People would die. It would be a disaster. But I'd imagine in an exhibition contest, things are a little different. The stakes are a little lower. So how has that gone over? And how does right. it work in practice? So I'm going to I'm gonna kind of walk you through. So we've only had this happen one time. And I need, I need to paint the picture for you guys just to put you in the seats there with me. So if you're thinking about fan catches a foul ball, you're thinking perfect scenario. So in regards to us, it's, it's bananas versus party animals or whoever it may be. And, uh, you know, a party animal hits a ball into the crowd. It's two outs in a big situation. And a fan catches a ball and he's out. And now it's the bananas turn to hit. And the bananas have a chance to win the inning in the bottom of the inning. So that's perfect scenario. Perfect world. The players are getting up there. You know, he's treated like a celebrity. Everybody, the players go up there, celebrate with him. He's doing post-game interviews, the whole nine yards. This is perfect scenario. Well, this was during our past season in our, and it was on tour. It was the start of our tour here in Savannah and the bananas are starting to rally. We got runners on second and third with a chance to win the inning, two outs and a, a line drive foul ball. Basically one of those screamers just goes up into the stands and a guy's trying to protect himself and he catches the ball. Mm. And it's against the bananas. And all of a sudden, I'm getting ready for the next promotion. And all of a sudden, I'm hearing in the background, people are starting to boo. I'm like, right. what's going on? Then I look up onto the field and the party animals are just going nuts. They're having a, they're celebrating, they're going crazy. They got out of this inning and they actually won that inning. And we're like, what just happened? Like the perfect scenario is out the window. It went the exact wrong way. So as everybody's booing, we actually take a police officer and we take him up to, to, to this fan and we actually kick him out of the stadium. Now, granted, we get him like all the way down to the, to the bottom and we're like, okay, no, we're not actually going to throw you out. We want you to enjoy the game. But oh my gosh, we, we have this perfect scenario built up for so long of like, we're going to, it's going to be against, against the party animals. 
But the first time it actually happens, it was against the banana in such a big, in the, against the bananas in such a big spot, which is pretty awesome. You know, it, it, it created such a great environment for all the fans. And, and, you know, we talked to that guy afterwards and he's like, you know what? I felt so involved, even if it was the wrong way and I'll, I'll never do it again. But now we can, you know, it's happened and we, we've seen it happen and we know it works and it's, it's, it's just so funny and it's amazing and it, and it gets our fans engaged and they're paying attention to the game 24 seven because they know Hey, at any given moment, you could be called on to make the next play. That's great. We've talked a lot on this podcast about how to deal with pace of play and what to do when games get to extra innings and we've bemoaned Manfred Ball and you guys have come up with your own solution both to to time of game and how to conclude games um, Mm -hmm. when they get to the two-hour limit. So for our listeners who aren't familiar... Tell us about showdown tiebreakers. Oh my gosh, the most electric plays in baseball, I'll tell you what. Those showdowns, so like you said earlier, two-hour time limit, and it's first to five, so every inning counts with, with the opportunity to walk off every inning. So the, obviously those are pretty important. So if the game does not get to five points and, and the two-hour time limit concludes, and and honest, and it's really funny, that's part of my job as well, is is monitoring time. Being the director of entertainment, I'm making sure, it, you know, usually that's the umpire's job, but that's very much on me to make sure that we're staying on time and, and that we don't exceed those two-hour time limits. And we won't start an inning, a, a new inning after like an hour 50 because we know we have to get to these these showdowns. And how the showdown works, and like we kind of talked about earlier, we touched about on it, but it's mono e mono. So pitcher versus hitter. And I kind of had dove into the 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 failure of the uh, just the pitcher, and then we added the fielder. So putting that in mind, you have the fielder who is on the infield grass before the pitch can be thrown. The pitch is thrown if the ball is put in play. The fielder has free reign, and the batter takes off as if it's an inside the park home run. So it's pretty much an inside the park home run or nothing. And this has created plays at the plate. This has created walk-off strikeouts. I mean, we have pitchers, you know, you, you hear about uh, hitters pimping home runs and, and bat flipping and all that kind of stuff. We have pitchers that are throwing their glove to the ground, getting fired up. The guys come running out of the dugout because they just struck out the last guy. And that creates this walk-off moment for a pitcher, which is so rare. Like, you don't even see that in baseball. But that that's kind of what these showdowns are. It's It's settling it with the most entertaining way possible. And it's getting back to that, you know, this is the the fans first and the entertaining aspect of the game. And we're making it more exciting to end that game as opposed to, you know, going into what, 17 inning games, which are just grueling. You see people falling asleep at the actual game itself. And, and we've completely eliminated that with all of the rules. Um, but the showdown, especially there at the end, just it, it just makes it so entertaining for these fans just to get so excited for the final outs of the game. So tell me how you find players for the pro team, not for the collegiate summer league team. How do tryouts work? Do you call them tryouts? Are they auditions? Yeah. How yeah. do you figure out which players are not only going to be good, but also are going to be entertaining? And then how do you tell them what to expect so that they know what they're getting into? Absolutely. It's it's a very unique balance for sure. It's funny that you say it's like an audition because there are different, there's different, every baseball tryout has been the same for a long time. You know, you feel ground balls, you hit. You maybe do some live ABs, whatever it may be. We have to do it different, you know, because you never know in the third inning, you may be called on to do a player dance. And that's not something a normal baseball player has probably ever done. Uh, I, I can go out on a limb and pretty, be pretty confident that the, uh, the overwhelming majority have not done a player dance in the third inning. 
So yeah, we have a tryout and you know, tryouts, those get posted. Um, I believe ours is in February um, to get ready for the spring for the spring series. But yeah, we're looking for guys that are going to be entertaining as well as a high level of baseball. Like I've said before, we, you know, last year we had Jake Peavy, you know, uh, he's on the Hall of Fame ballot. He, uh, he threw out our first banana last year and he, and he told Jesse and I, he's like, next year I'm pitching. So, you know, we have these professional guys that have pitched at such a high level that we need all of our other guys to match the same type of skill level. So we have these highly competitive games because we have the best of the best of these guys coming in wanting to play, but we're not just looking for good talent. We're looking for the buy-in. We're looking for the people that are willing to get out there and dance. You know, we had a guy that was on stilts. He took an actual at-bat on stilts. You know, those types of crazy people that we're looking for all the time that can also bring a high level of baseball. Just to, for the fan experience alone, like you don't want to have this game be filled with errors because that's actually going to slow the game down even more. And we're actually creating a new stat, which, I, which I'll let Jesse kind of uh, touch on when you guys talk with him because that's going to be an awesome conversation, but minutes per inning. So how long is an inning? How many times can you hit the strike zone? And this is for pitchers. This is a stat for pitchers. Like how fast are you working through an inning? How many pitches are you throwing in an inning? And how many times are you pounding the fastball into for a strike? Like how many strikes are you throwing? And, and that all gets back to that, you know, speed up the game with good play. And that's how we're trying to find these people and these, these ball players. There are obviously parts of this that wouldn't necessarily translate to Major League Baseball, and there's mm-hmm. uh, even just beyond the the self seriousness of the league. But I'm curious if there are any of these innovations that you think, with modification, could find their way to affiliated ball in some sort of meaningful way. Yeah, I, I think it's a slow grow. I think with with affiliated ball and them starting to adopt some of our identities and what we're doing here. Um, the first thing that I want to see, honestly, is the celebrations, you know, and, and the fan engagement with the guys. We have a promo and it's called the Sweethearts of the Game. And basically what it is, is each one of our guys gets a rose and they go up into the crowd and they get on a knee and give a rose to a little girl. And I'm telling you, every time I see this happen, y- you make a fan for life. And you just see these little girls' faces light up like the night sky. It's unbelievable. And I really want to see those kinds of interactions happen at the pro level. I mean, I want to see guys bat flipping. We want to see pitchers celebrating. We want to see these guys' personal side. Every time Major League Baseball posts something about you know a guy being personable, for example, the uh, Anthony Rizzo and Freddie Freeman, when they were mm-hmm. in the rundown, automatically you know what I'm talking about because it was posted so many times, but these guys were seen as humans for once um, as opposed to just incredible baseball players. And I think the more personal that these guys get and the more fun they have, the better the game's going to be, and it's going to start to draw more of that fun fan base. Um, and I think that's step one. And then step two is is starting to uh, look at some of the more details. But for me personally, and I think everybody in our office and Jesse himself, I think he would have a different answer because it, it is a personal thought, but that's mine personally, if that makes sense. 
How much do you and Jesse look to the precursors, kind of other exhibition teams, whether in baseball or softball or other mm-hmm. sports that have tried similar things? I know that the bananas get comped to the Globetrotters a lot, but there is a lot of baseball and softball precedent too, even right. you know going back to Bill Veck and, and the showmanship there and the promotions or mm-hmm. Eddie Fainer, the softball exhibition yeah. team, the king in his court that traveled all over the country or Max Patkin and the other clown princes of baseball so is there some inspiration there either specific ideas or the ethos or just sort of business strategies that have worked for those other teams and leagues the first thing that jesse told me and this was after you know starting starting here it was one of the first things that he said to me was everything that you know about baseball we're going to do the exact opposite so yes we look at other baseball teams but very little in fact, uh, just last week, instead of going to you know a baseball game or something like that, I went and saw the circus. So mm-hmm. I went to Florida State because they have a a circus program, and I went and watched the circus. You know, we're looking outside of the box of baseball because we want to take the best things of other other sports and other you know events and put that into a baseball game. You know, like I said earlier, what if the third inning is a circus? So we're looking in pretty much all other directions other than just baseball. You know, Jesse's a huge fan of, and myself too, um, and our entire team takes a lot after the Walt Disney and, and what he was able to create. And, and like you said, the Bill Vec and what he did with baseball, which is kind of what we're doing along those lines, if that makes sense. But we're looking at so many different places. We had a video go viral a little bit ago and it was a golf batter. You know, we had a, a, a caddy go up to home plate and he took the range. He had his range finder. He had a book. They were looking at the book as if it was the masters. We had the masters theme song playing in the background. We had a golf bag full of golf clubs and the whole, the whole nine yards of golf before and at bat. And then he pulls out the bat and then he goes to hit. So we're looking at all these different sports and, you know, entertainment pieces like the circus. And we're trying to bring that into baseball just to make it more fun and more entertaining because you never know when you're going to get a diamond in the rough with that. But when it comes to to baseball, we, we don't really look too much at it because that's in our box. We're looking to get outside of our box and get more creative outside of that world. So the team has a big social media following, particularly on TikTok, where it has an enormous audience. How does that translate to revenue, I suppose, for the bananas? If you're just playing locally, are are people Uh traveling from far and wide to see bananas games? I know that this has led to a lot of media attention and a lot of follows and a lot of sellouts in the local market. But and, you know, we can talk about your plans for the future, but has not had a a global tour or anything yet, although maybe that's in the cards. But (laughs) how does that online following translate to, you know, dollars for the bananas right now? Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting that you say that I uh, I, I've kind of coined it myself and I don't want Disney to come after me, but I've called it the circle of life in banana land. And here's why. So if we look at me, you can take this from every every single person that's in our front office. You can start with them and get back to me. You know, it's like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon on Wikipedia. I don't know if you've ever tried that, but mm-hmm. it's the same thing. You know, Jesse and I start with idea creation and we create 10 ideas and then we put together a script and we have a, a script for the night of everything that we're going to do with new walk-ups, with our four new ideas, with walk-ups, celebrations, uh, new promo on-field and new pregame activation. We have all this. And then this script goes to our marketing team. 
And our marketing team, you know, they plan out their plan of attack of, okay, we need to capture this, this, and this. We're going to capture this celebration, this celebration, and this player walk up. And then we're going to schedule out a post for that. So now we've entertained, um, as the game is happening, we've entertained our live audience. And then our marketing team has captured that moment that we've have internal inter inside the stadium. And now we're going to blast that out to the world on our digital audience with TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all, all the social medias that you can think of. We're going to blast it out to them. And now those people see it. Maybe one of those goes viral. Okay. Now they look into who we are. They become fans. So now we've created, you know, maybe one new fan. And then that person goes out and talks to 10 people. And now we've created 11 fans. And then those 11 people go out and talk to more people. Okay. Well, a couple of those people are likely to go and buy merchandise. You know, that's just kind of a logical next step. They want to rep what they, or if, even if they were there, they want to rep the bananas and they want to show off and they're, you know, they're going to wear their shirt out in public. And someone's like, well, what is that? That's an awesome logo. You wouldn't believe what they're doing out in Savannah. I went to a baseball game and had the time of my life. Again, another fan was just created where, you know, we're creating these fan moments. And then that gets to our, our merch team, which in turn sells more tickets, which in turn, you know, brings more people to the ballpark. And, and, and it's this circle that now we're back to me, you know, tickets were sold for this game. What are they going to see? And now we've created this circle, like I said, the circle of life of what they're going to see, how it helps everybody and how we become one cog basically in a machine that's just running perfectly over and over. And, and, and it's creating new ideas and all the, and all this thing. But like I said, you can start with the people that we hire from, from day one. We've been very particular on who comes on board here because it is that important to us. And it, and it's very, it's just an important cycle that we keep sticking to. And, and, you know, it's created those 900,000 fans on TikTok and however many over the world, but more than any major league team and more than any minor league team on all of our social medias because of this cycle and, and just pushing the envelope and being different. I don't want to make you spoil anything here, but last month in the Effectively Wild Facebook group, you posted, if you or someone you happen to know has extensive <laughs> baseball knowledge and has trained in dance and performance, please have them reach out. And I always joke that anytime I ever post a question or ask something in the Effectively Wild Facebook group, I get an immediate answer. There's mm -hmm. always someone who fits the description. And within a couple of comments, you got a response from a member named Justin who said, I'm a former tap dancing theater kid and current NCAA Empire. Does that work? <laughs> and you said you'd send him a message. It sounds yeah. right up your alley. So, what were you looking for there, if you could say? Yeah, yeah. Not. A, I don't mind at all. It is funny. I, I got a response so quickly, and it was the perfect place to post it. You know, mm -hmm. what if the umpire, after striking someone out, goes into a choreographed dance to strike him out? Sure. Why not? Mm -hmm. You know, why, why, why not? Why? You know, you see those videos kind of pop up um, usually around like the Dominican Republic of like crazy strikeouts and you know strikeout calls from umpires and stuff like that yeah, or naked gun even yeah. yeah exactly like just so many different and it's always entertaining and people are laughing and phones go up they start recording it and, and it's just so entertaining it's like we, why would we not have that you know that seems like it's right up our alley so we're always looking for for new people and that seemed like pretty much a no-brainer of a, a, a dancing umpire of some sort and especially if he can call balls and strikes and master the game of banana ball and be dancing and get the rules right. I mean, it's, that's a win-win-win all the way around for our fans online, our fans in the stadium, and, and just us in general because we get to watch it and be fans of our own work. 
I am explicitly going to ask you to spoil something and if you can and share with us. Are there any uh, anything that you guys have cooking for next year that you can share with our listeners? A little preview? You don't have to give anything big away, but... Yeah. I mean, like I said, we're, we're always pushing the envelope of what's new and fun here. We're always going to... Anytime you come to a bananas game and especially a banana ball game, you're going to get something new and unusual and different. And you're going to be like, as you're leaving this area, you're like, I can't believe I saw this at the game. And one that I've been kind of working towards a lot is a group called the Banana Splits. And obviously that name makes perfect sense, but it's a group of young dancers that instead of like normal cheerleaders, like we have our like normal um, we have our dad bod cheerleading squad and our grandma dance team. But what if we had little kids and, you know, like a dance studio type group that is doing dances that every dance ends in a, in a split and they're wearing bright yellow and they're, they're called the banana splits. Like how fun would that be? Like, first off, you're playing on the cute where everybody's like, oh my gosh, that's the cutest thing I've ever seen. And they're talented and they do the splits at the end. I mean, that's just unbelievably big. So that's something that we're looking to add this year which, without giving too much away. But we're, we're always adding new stuff. So you're never going to get the same game twice here in Banana Land. I'll tell you that. And there will be more places to see Banana Ball next year, right? I know that mm-hmm. this year there were a couple of Banana Ball games in Mobile. It was the 2021 One City World Tour, right? Yeah. But- <laughs> <laughs> next year you seem to already have some dates lined up for for several locations in the spring right yeah we're going we're we're, we're continuing to expand this uh this game in banana ball and um you know going from one city to i want to say it's seven now seven cities including savannah you know we're, we're going to all these different cities so we're going to savannah daytona beach uh, Montgomery, Alabama, West Palm Beach, Florida, Columbus, Georgia, Birmingham, Alabama, and then Kansas City. And, and you know, obviously changing from one city to that many is, is pretty amazing. Um, but we're taking banana ball all over the place. And because the people want it, you know, when we first asked, where should we go? We have over 4,000 cities that are saying, hey, bring banana ball here. We want to see it here. We want to see it. We had, I don't know how, I want to say we had over 20 international requests. Like this is something that will go worldwide but you know we have to be very smart on where we go next and you know we we like to test things and we do new tests and we're going to these ballparks that have so much history i mean we're going to um the oldest ballpark in america and we're playing the newest game the most exciting game so we we're going from this from the oldest to the newest and then we're playing at um the houston astros and washington nationals uh spring training facility in west palm beach so we're trying all these new things. And then Kansas City, we're going to be playing someone, we're playing another team. So we're playing the Kansas City Monarchs as opposed to just playing the party animals or or our own groups, you know. So it's really, really exciting of where we're going and what's to come. And it, And like I said, it's just the beginning. I mean shoot we went from one city to seven now and and it's just unbelievable the growth that this this thing has taken off like nobody's business it's 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 moving and it's moving quick yeah i wonder it's a a lot of fun clearly just as an exhibition but it kind of reminds me maybe of of 2020 cricket or, or t20 as it's known which was just this shortened sped up version of the game a new format supposed to be more exciting but initially it wasn't really taken very seriously it wasn't intended to be played internationally but then it blew up and now yeah. it's played at a really high level so who knows maybe banana ball follows a similar trajectory but even if it's just for fun that is okay 
too, and maybe MLB teams could take something away from it. So hopefully we will be able to talk to Jesse at some point in the future, maybe when the Bananas go back on the road. But in the meantime, tell everyone where they can find either you or the Bananas. How do they watch? How do they follow? How do they get tickets, etc.? Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely, I highly, highly, highly recommend talking with Jesse because, you know, hearing the story of how this thing came to be back in 2016 is nothing short of inspiring, honestly. And and where it is now, it's it's unbelievable. So the sooner you can talk to Jesse, the better, because man, he's it's 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 pretty special, and I'm super thankful to be here. You know, where to get tickets or where to find us? You know, at the Savannah Bananas or at the Sav Bananas on most of our social medias. If you just look up Savannah Bananas, I'm sure you'll run into us. Getting tickets, joining our priority list is pretty much the best way to go about it. As you know. It, it it has become pretty tough to uh, to buy tickets. You know, we've seen scalpers try to sell our tickets for you know four times its face value, which is just unbelievable because it's an all inclusive ticket. So you know that's the best play- way to find tickets is just go search us up on our website. And how to find me? Um, you can find me on pretty much all social medias. Zach Frangelo, Z A C K, and then my last name F R O N G I L L O. You know, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, pretty much anywhere you can find me. And I'm always open to talking. And you know talking bananas because it's it, it is fun. I love it. And I, I love to talk about it. And I love to, you know, share what we're doing here because I think I really truly believe in what we're doing is is making baseball fun and we're making new fans every single day. And we're inspiring this younger generation of baseball fans. I'm realizing now I shouldn't have introduced you in this segment. I should have asked you to introduce yourself because that's what <laughs> bananas players do, right? On their way oh to the plate, gosh. they yeah. announce themselves. So it would have been appropriate. But thank you very much for joining us. This was Zach Frangelo, and we enjoyed talking about the bananas today. Appreciate it, Zach. Again, thank you guys so much. I really hope to have you guys out at a game soon. Okay, that will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening, and thanks to everyone who has signed up on Patreon. As we announced last week, we have added some new perks, including Patreon-exclusive monthly podcast episodes, AMA-style Q&A-type pods, and access to a patron-only Effectively Wild Discord group, which is approaching 400 members already. Annual memberships to Patreon are now available as well, so you can support us month to month or do the lump sum, whatever you want. Go check out all the rewards and options at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly or perhaps yearly amount to help keep the podcast going and keep us ad-free and get themselves access to those perks. Eric Cumming, Jason Koenig, Dave Halsing, Dan Hopkins and Sean Kuhn. Thanks to all of you. Next time, we will be answering some emails. So send us some, please, at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also send them via Patreon message if you are a supporter. And in our third and final episode this week, we will be discussing the first four episodes of Stove League. I've heard from many of you who are already watching, but please do go check it out. Again, the links to stream it are on the show page. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. There is an Effectively Wild subreddit. It's called Effectively Wild. There's an Effectively Wild Twitter account at EWPod. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance, and we will be back with another episode soon. Talk to you then. Good, great,